It's good to see all of you this morning. Uh, If you haven't already, you can be joining me in your Bibles in the book of Galatians. We have been in this book for quite some time now. Some might say too long. I don't know. Personally, I think that, uh, that Galatians is, in some ways, one of the more technical and even difficult, in some ways, uh, books of the New Testament, but difficult in dealing with ideas and concepts that are really very crucial to us in understanding the impact of the cross on human history. That's what this has been about. Uh, and so for that reason, we have walked very carefully through this letter, uh, and I hope we've walked just carefully enough, but not too carefully uh, not overlooking important things. We have, though, we have two more Sundays in the letter to the Galatians. We have this week, and we have next week. And then we are finished. Uh, And this morning, we'll start to hear, uh, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 6, Paul's conclusion to his letter. Uh, We'll hear most of that conclusion this week, and next week we'll finish that and recap the letter as a whole. What you're going to find, though, in both this morning and next week is that just as we go through these concluding verses, uh, verses 11 to 18, uh, we, are conclu- we are summarizing the entire letter already just by doing that because Paul is doing a very effective job of bringing back and bringing to culmination some of the main themes he has been working in uh, throughout this letter. Uh, Verse 11 marks the start of the end, the beginning of the end of the letter here, and Paul shows that by taking the pen up into his own hand for a moment. He has not had the pen in his hand. He has been dictating this letter to a professional who was called an amanuensis who would write down letters like this. This was very common for them so that it could be done very professionally and neatly. Uh, But for a moment, he takes the pen into his hand, as we'll see. And that personalizes the letter. It authenticates the letter. But we're then left with verses 12 to 18, which are very obviously and intentionally going to be summarizing two big pictures for us. That's what we're going to see this week and next week, a summary of the two big pictures he's been painting all the way along. He has been painting two pictures of contrasts for us. One has been the contrast between his own genuine love for them and his own devotion to the true gospel versus the selfishness and waywardness of the Judaizers. So there's a Judaizers versus Paul contrast that has spanned the book, and he's going to raise it again in this conclusion. Secondly, there's also been a theme of old versus new creation that we've noticed throughout this letter. It started in the very first verse of Galatians when he made reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's a contrast that he has often presented in in this letter. And that old versus new, that's going to be the second contrast he will summarize this morning and next week. Uh, It's going to look like this. Uh, Verses 12 and 13. So we're going to see him break in in verse 11. Let me just give you a preview here of what what the organization is going to be of what we're looking at. In verses 12 and 13, he gives us the Judaizers versus Paul contrast, right? 12 and 13. Verses 15 to 17, he gives us the old versus new creation contrast. And then right in the middle, verse 14, is a verse that has both of those contrasts inside of it. And so it's something of a bridge between these two. 
uh, including both of them inside of itself. And by the time he's done recapping and laying before us these two contrasts, what we're left with is something of a choice that we have to make. There's a choice for you and a choice for me. It's been presented all the way along, and he's going to force us to end by thinking about this choice again. The question is, whose voice will we listen to? There are competing voices represented in this letter. There are ministers of the old, of the present age, in his day represented by the Judaizers. And then there is the voice of the apostles, what we've always called the apostolic witness. There's their voice. They are ministers of the age that is to come. They're ministers of the new covenant. And so whose voice will we listen to? I hope you sense that question being put to you as we read this passage and as we begin to draw the letter to an end. I'll be reading Galatians 6, verses 11 to 18 out of the ESV Bible. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Paul now continues and concludes in this way. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus." The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Starting in verse 12, uh, we begin to see the first of these two comparisons. It's a comparison of the group of the Judaizers versus Paul. And what he does in verses 12 and 13 is he describes the opposition the enemy to these brothers and sisters that he has loved so much. We find there that he sums up his depictions of them in this letter really with two general critiques. He's going to critique their motives in verses 12 and 13, and he's going to critique their practice in verse 13. Let me reread 12 and 13 together, and I want you to listen for motive. What is he telling us about the motive of these Judaizers, these false teachers? Here's what he said there. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Did you hear statements of motivation there as he's exposing this in them? Verse 12 both names it and explains it. Here's the name for their motive. They want to make a good showing in the flesh. 
There it is. It's quite clear what he's getting at. The real reason that they're trying to force circumcision upon you, Galatians, is that it is a means for them to make a good showing in the flesh. That is to say, getting you to submit to circumcision is going to make them look good in the eyes of other people. And those other people, those are the people that they care about pleasing. It's their approval that these men are seeking. They are afraid of men, not of God. And so they want to make a good showing before those men. It's especially clear that that's what he's talking about here because he not only names the motive, he also explains it at the end of verse 12. Why are they trying to make this good showing? He says there, it's in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Remember who we're talking about with the Judaizers. These are not Jews. I mean religiously Jews. They may well and likely were uh, ethnically Jews, but they are not religious Jews. These are a group claiming to be Christians, but who really don't want to upset the Judaizing, uh, the, the Jewish element around them. It's very possible that this group has come from Jerusalem, and so they have a heavy stake in what the Jewish population thinks there. But even in the outside pockets, where there's largely Gentiles uh, beginning to occupy the church, Christians in that first century are always closely connected with the Jewish communities that they live in. And so the opinion of the Jewish population would have directly impacted them from the beginning, as the book of Acts makes very clear. This group of Judaizers really don't want to upset the Jews. And so they have done the math. And they've taken the polls. And they've figured out that if they require circumcision, that is, if they can assimilate some of these visible old covenant realities in with the new, they will find sufficient popular approval that they won't have to suffer for what they are teaching. And if you think about that motivation, it's not hard to, to understand. It's very understandable. It's as humanly understandable as it is biblically impossible. I want Jesus, but I don't want him enough to be willing to suffer for his sake. So here's what I'll do. I'll try to keep him and capitulate to the popular approval that's needed in this spirit of the age. I wonder if that sounds like 2021 to you, but if you know much about history, it's, it sounds like all kinds of times in history. And maybe I'm strange, but I find some, some sort of comfort in that. Is there a strange kind of comfort in knowing that every age has had its own version of a spirit of the age, its own manifestation? of the spirit of the age that has challenged gospel faithfulness. And so every age has had its own version of false gospel to be resisted. Theirs was the gospel's claim that faith alone, apart from works of our own, justifies sinners. That was the primary stumbling block for the spirit of the age. Ours, perhaps, is the gospel's claim of Jesus Christ as an exclusive savior who actually demands worship and all of the submission and trust that worship entails. Maybe that's ours uniquely. Other times have had other gospel challenges, 
But Christians of all times have had to make a choice. When the rubber hits the road, whose approval is it that I care about? Whose approval am I seeking? Verse 13 adds to this and makes it even more clear that this is not behavior, even for these Judaizers, it's not behavior done out of a true conviction regarding the law, regarding a life that walks according to the law. It's not that, even for them. It's pragmatic. So now we see his critique of their practice itself. Look there at verse 13. He says, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. The boasting is being done to prove themselves to those whose approval they really care about. He says, Notice how these teachers don't even display a consistent care for the law itself. They only care about the way that the visible signs associated with the law, namely circumcision, they only care about the way that those visible signs provide a way for me to participate in my own salvation. This is what they've come in teaching and leading astray, uh, leading the Galatians astray with. In order to please their audience, they need to prove a maintained zeal for the law. And for them, the way to put that zeal on display is to have a large number of circumcised Gentiles in their wake that they can point to as what validates them and their message. Now you bring that into verse 14 and you find the explicit contrast here. Because now he enters the mix. He says in response to all of that, he says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just stop there for a moment. He uses here an expression that is the strongest way to denote a rejection of something in this language. We translate it in many ways in other places in Scripture. It will translate it as, God forbid, or may it never be. It's a, it's a, it's a visceral reaction of opposition to whatever the idea was that just came before it. God forbid this. Those are the sorts of glosses that we put on this. And Paul says that about 14 different situations in the New Testament. There are 14 different ideas that come up that lead Paul in disgust to say this. May it never be. 13 of the 14 of those show up either in Romans or here in Galatians. He's doing something very polemical, very specific in these two letters. Usually what happens is he raises a question himself and then responds like this. God forbid. I wonder, are the questions and situations that he brings up and responds to them like this, are they little deals or are they big deals? Let me give you some examples of the, other, of the questions that he brings up elsewhere that elicit this response. Right? Uh, what are the kind of caliber of questions that he brings up? So here's one. Is God unrighteous? Here's a question that brings up this response in Paul. Should we who died to sin still live in it? Is the law sin? Is there injustice with God? There's a question he brings up that, pre that creates this response. Something of a big deal. Should I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Or how about this one? Is Christ a servant of sin? 
Those are the sorts of questions that come up that lead Paul to recoil and shout this out. God forbid. And we have another one here. The notion to Paul that he would boast in the flesh in any way gives Paul this same kind of recoiling. Far be it from me to, God forbid that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think this is the right context. Do you ever have the phenomenon happen where you come back to something, you see it, or maybe you read it, you've read it several times before, but for whatever reason, the context of the day or the thought you just had that before you got to this makes it so that you read that and it hits you in a completely different way. Or it suddenly falls into place like it hadn't before. I wonder if that's ever happened to you. I think this is the right frame of mind for us to hear what he says in Philippians chapter 3. Would you just turn there with me for a moment because it's sort of a long passage. Unless you just like to close your eyes and hear it, you could do that as well. Let me read Philippians 3, verses 2 to 11. He gives this warning. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And there he uses a word that rhymes with the word circumcision in order to slam these people. So other translations say, uh, beware those of the false circumcision. He's playing with words there to make his point. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. All these sources of glory and justification found in the flesh. He says, I give them all up. Indeed, I count them as rubbish in order to gain Christ and be found in him. He says to us this morning in Galatians 6.14, far be it from me, God forbid that I would boast. In the realm of this world, 
my works, uh, something for me to point to in order to boast. That is to say, I think this is what he means by that boasting, something for me to point to that establishes my righteousness, that vindicates me. The answer in this life, in this world, must be nothing. It must be nothing. Only one thing will Paul boast in. Only one thing will he point to as demonstration of his righteousness, and it's the work of the cross. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I wonder if if I use the word pithy, a pithy statement, is that a negative thing to you? I don't mean it in a negative way. There are pithy statements that are that have staying power. They hit you, and you're, you're impressed by them, uh, and maybe they stay in your memory. Uh, in that way, this sort of statement that Paul makes, I, I think, is a very profound and powerful sort of pithy statement. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The problem with those kinds of statements is sometimes, even because we were hit by them uh, in the way they are worded, We can move on then without stopping and dwelling on them for a moment, without asking some questions. It's ironic how sometimes the more more impressive uh, statements we can think very little about. We must not do that with this statement. Uh, Let's think about the question of why here. Why exactly is it that my good deeds... Uh, or he says in Romans 3.20, the works of the law. Why is it that these deeds done in the flesh do not produce boasting, but the cross does? Why? Is there something wrong with those other things? Are they bad things? Certainly not. They're commanded things. They, They bring glory to God. They're not bad things. Why do they not produce boasting in this way that the cross does? And the answer is, those other things cannot result in entrance into the kingdom of God. They cannot atone for sin. They can't cleanse me such that I am granted entrance into God's kingdom. There is one act that has done that, and that act is the cross. We read in Romans chapter 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. You notice that last thing that I just read. Let me read that again. What is the result of this great accomplishment of the cross in terms of your life and experience today? Your your life as a Christian. What's the result? He said there it was that we no longer walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And we've heard that in Galatians, haven't we? Galatians 4.29 said that those who are born according to the Spirit, those are the children of God. We are those who are born according to the Spirit rather than born according to the flesh. My friends, that is rebirth language. That's spiritual life language. The cross is the means by which a sinner passes from the death of this present evil age 
to the life of the age to come. Now, thus far, we've been in the first contrast of Paul versus the Judaizers. Maybe you can tell we're starting to veer into the second contrast, the old versus new contrast uh, that Paul's going to have for us. Notice the way that he ends verse 14 here. This is where we see it uh, in particular. Verse 14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And there it is. The reason that the cross is boastworthy in this absolutely exclusive way is that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ actually accomplishes what nothing else was able to. It accomplishes the severing of my life in this present evil age, my connection to the present evil age. In his death, I die to the world in order to finally live to God. Have we heard that before in Galatians? Yeah, that's what Galatians 2.19 says. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And my friends, this has got to be the characterizing statement of our fixations in the life that we have left as we walk as Christians. It has to be the characterizing statement of my fixations. It can't be fixation on the approval of others or a fixation on a certain set of conditions for my remaining years of life. It simply can't be those things. No, the cross must characterize my fixation. Because what Paul has made clear is that the cross is all that matters in the end. It's all that matters. It's the ground of anything that matters. And there will, I will grant you, there are times where you and I both don't feel that way. But you tell me it's not true that every one of us, every member of the human race will feel that way for all eternity. That the events of the cross on an early Friday morning outside of Jerusalem, that that was the ground of all that ever mattered. You tell me that we won't all feel that way for all of eternity. Because only the cross can restore our broken fellowship with our Creator. He was pierced, this is what Isaiah tells us, he was pierced for our transgressions. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This is what marks the transfer that simply must happen. And it's the impetus behind the really quite shocking statement of verse 15. It would have been quite shocking in this first generation of the church. You can tell from the book of Acts that such a concept was a real struggle. He says in verse 15, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. I think there are really two ideas behind this statement of, the, of a new creation being what counts for anything. I see an idea of need there and an idea of desire. This certainly is the thing that I need. The only thing that can be anything to me is to be created again. That's what I need. I don't need fixing. I need killing and being born again. This states that. 
And kids, this is, I, I would say to you, this is, Um, this is a really crucial idea that, um, oh, sorry, guys. This is one of those ideas that we, are, that we feel so strongly that you come to understand as soon as you can. Your problem is our problem. Your problem. Um, is not a problem that simply can be gently corrected. You have a sin problem, and as a result of that, you need to go through a kind of death. And what we find at the cross is that Jesus dies the death that is needed on behalf of his people, and we join him in his death when we come to him in the gospel. You need to die and to be born again. This is what we uh, so desire that you would understand and embrace. And every time that you know what your parents have told you to do, and if you've known what is right, and you find that you can't care enough to do it, every time you continue to disobey or to sin, all that's happening to you is you're experiencing the same problem that every one of us came to realize long ago. Oh, my goodness. The, oh, I'm sorry, guys. <clears throat> Good news is, Paul felt that as well at a lot of points. Uh, since he is a human being who came to know the Lord, he felt that as well. At one point, he says, wretched man that I am, who will save me from the body of this death? And his answer was exactly what we're talking about. We see in verse 15 uh, a clear display of the need that we have for new creation. Uh, but this, I think his statement also captures what is to be then our desire. Maybe it goes without saying. But this, this speaks to, again, my fixation in this life. My end goal for myself, uh, for those I love, can't be found in this world, in this creation. My end goal must be found in eternity, in the new creation. And we sing about this stuff. Right? Uh, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's a lot of very good things in that group of lesser than that. Things that we are commanded, things that we can participate in. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. A sweet frame, I don't know what he had in mind, that's not a bad thing. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. You can compare that with the desire that Paul expressed when we read in Philippians 3. I count all my own righteousness in the flesh as rubbish in, now that I've seen that justification comes by faith alone in Christ alone. It's rubbish so that I might gain Christ and be found in him. All I desire is to know him and to be known by him, to know the power of his resurrection, and to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Did you notice that he included that in all that he desires? Nothing else matters if I don't find rescue from this present evil age, the age that 1 John 2.17 says is passing away. Nothing else matters. 
And four verses into this letter, Paul declared that Jesus Christ gave himself for the sins of his people in order to deliver them from the present evil age. He gave away the ending at the beginning of this letter. And in the first verse of the first chapter, he declared the means by which that rescue happened. It happened in Jesus' death and resurrection. In his death, his people died and were raised to new life. So we're talking about union with Christ, aren't we? That is our only hope, union with our Lord and Savior. So one question that we need to be wrestling with this morning is the question, is that the source? Union with Christ, is that the source of my hope today? Does my hope so rest on union with Christ through the work of Christ, which is finished, that any trial or different difficult circumstance that the Lord would choose to bring my way can in no way rob me of hopefulness because I'm united to Christ in his death and resurrection. Now, if we're honest, that is a posture that even when we can see it as a noble posture and as the right posture to have, we know that that kind of peace is often far from us, isn't it? It's just the truth. We know that our thoughts often betray doubts. So what do we do with those things? What do we do with those times, with those wrestlings? Because often those, those kinds of struggles can lead us to a sense that we should hide from God because it brings shame with it. Uh, can I suggest to you that those very times can themselves serve to fix my attention on what is eternal instead of what's temporal? And what I mean is this, there's a big difference I hope you know this. There's a big difference between a heart that rejects Jesus Christ in unbelief and a heart, <coughs> a heart that cries out to the Lord. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. There's a big difference between those two places. When I recognize union with Christ as truly all that I need, then even when I don't feel it, even when I don't live it in that day, I can still have a longing for it if I understand that it is all that a sinner needs. I can sense the lack of it in my, in, in my emotional life, in my mental life, and still desire it, long for it. And when I read of Christ's return as the completion of my sanctification and as the end of my battles with sins like these, then even those inconsistencies in my walk with the Lord will themselves cause me not to, not to be afraid of his coming, but to groan and to long for his return. They won't make me want to run and hide myself from him. They will make me all the more eager for him to draw near to me, which is what he will do to his people when he returns. That's a real thought for us to leave on and to take from here. And in a real way and proper way, it is a part of the summary of what Paul's been trying to get across to us this entire time in the letter to the Galatians. It very well describes, for example, how he characterized the life of a believer in Galatians 5.5. I'll end with this. Would you look over at Galatians 5.5? We talked about this at length when we were there. Notice how he portrays the posture of a Christian. And notice how deeply this is a posture 
that is looking, hoping, waiting. He said this, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we bow our heads together this morning in reverence, in respect and awe for the person of Christ and the words of Christ. And this morning in particular, for the cross of Christ. We ask you, fill us afresh with the Spirit, so that our worship in this moment will bring true honor to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. True honor to you, and genuine consolation to our souls. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a passage that lends itself very well to our taking of the Lord's Supper together, as we're about to do. 